Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. At this point, I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to uh, John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be reading verses 12 through 36. And as you can see with the the colors behind me here, and if we have it on the PowerPoint as well, uh, we have a shift from our green colors to purple, just a visual cue that we're in a different season here. We've entered into Lent, and one of the other things that's changed is that we've moved from an arrow pointing one way to the other. Uh, We've changed in this direction. And what this helps us to, to visualize is actually what's happening in the Gospel of John at this point. Uh, the Gospel of John has the first 12 chapters where Jesus' ministry is very public. Jesus is saying things to all of the people. He goes to Samaritans. He goes to the Pharisees. He goes in Galilee. He's in Jerusalem. Jesus has this public ministry where he is teaching and he is performing signs. Chapter 13 comes along, and Jesus is now only speaking to his disciples. He, he, this transition comes in where Jesus is giving very personal instruction and preparation for the cross. Now, we're going to be sitting in chapters 13 and beyond in the upcoming weeks, but we're actually going to step back and go to chapter 12 because this is this hinge point. This is the point that where the the directions change. These are Jesus' last words of public ministry. This is a time where his hour has come. Uh, This is something that every um, chapter has been building up towards in the Gospel of John. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And here it's arrived. And Jesus is being welcomed in our passage as king. We're going to see in the words that follow that welcoming, that Jesus' view of what it means to be king, what it means to be God, is a little bit different than what the people are expecting. So while we're going to read verses 12 through 36, we're going to be focusing in on verses 24 through 28 and Jesus' response to his grand entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, Just as context here, too, this is during Passover, Um, As we read Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, um, this is preparation for this final week before the cross. Before reading these words, let's come before God in prayer. Lord Christ, by remaining faithful till death, you showed us the road to greater love. By taking the burden of sin upon yourself, you reveal to us the way of generosity. By praying for those who crucified you, you lead us to forgive without counting the cost. By opening paradise to the repentant thief, you awaken hope in us. Come and help our faith that we may believe. Create a pure heart in us, renew and strengthen us as we hear your word. Amen. John 12, starting at 
starting in verse 12, I'll be reading in the 2011 edition of the NIV. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his, don- his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Jesus says these words indicating his sacrifice. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's this, this line that talks about how sacrifice can, can lead to this new fruit, how it will lead to this new life. I think when we see sacrifice, someone sacrifice for the benefit of others, it can be a beautiful thing. There is something that can actually seem quite natural, something really true about it, that that person who is acting in that way has tapped into the true nature of the world, that, that we've actually been hardwired in ourselves to give ourselves for others. I've had the privilege of seeing this in my family recently. Um, over the past few months, I've seen my dad visit my grandma several times a day. If a hospital visit was needed, he was the one to drive her. If a doctor needed to give an update, he was there to kind of interpret, understand what was going on in her health. Up until her last days, he was present with her, ensuring she didn't feel alone in the hospital. This isn't the first time I've, I've seen this type of thing being done for loved ones. I've seen many people in this church do the same. There are several words we could use to describe it, but I think it's actually helpful to describe it as sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of energy. In order to be present, it involved putting aside our own desires, maybe the things that we would prefer to be with them. I know sometimes we want to downplay maybe the language of sacrifice, especially in those times. It wasn't a sacrifice. I wanted to do it. As though the word sacrifice is tarnishing the authenticity of it, that it is no longer something beautiful. Sacrifice makes it sound like a chore to do. However, in the Christian vocabulary, I think sacrifice can be recovered as something beautiful. Like the, the word glory in John, we've talked about that in the past, how glory defined in the gospel means something different than how our culture might define it. The same may be said of self-sacrifice. There are times where we are called into beautiful acts of self-sacrifice in our day-to-day -day and sometimes in the larger moments in life, and our passage calls us to see the beauty in it how these moments actually call us in to live as we were meant to be. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus, in speaking this, is announcing the truth that death must precede life. Like a seed falling to the ground and dying to give life, so he will have to die to bring life. Right before this, he says that the hour has come for him to be glorified. Up until this point, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus had said over and over that his hour had not yet come. This idea of the hour is repeated throughout the gospel. 
And now, when Jesus' hour has come, when this hour of glorification is right there, again, he associates it with sacrifice. He's pointing himself towards the cross. Glory and the cross are coming together. We're reminded again that Jesus' death would simultaneously be this lowest moment while at the same time be one of honoring, of glory. And notice in John, take note of this in our passage, that it is not after his death that glory will be given. It is in the act of dying itself. It is being in lifted up, as it repeats twice in our passage, that is glory itself. John repeats this over and over again, and we might ask ourselves kind of, how can this be? We might gloss over it. I think my own sensibilities want to say that it's actually in the, the results of the crucifixion. It's, it's in his resurrection that glory is truly there, but John doesn't say that. John is insistent that the cross itself is where glory is found. Notice in our passage, too, that though Jesus speaks of it as a time of glorification, he also speaks of it with some trepidation. In looking towards the cross, Jesus is not looking forward to this type of sacrifice. He says that his soul is troubled. We get a sense of agony down to his soul. He is troubled down to the core of his being of what is to come, the suffering that he will have to go through, the abandonment that he will feel. And there's, I think, a bit of a comfort in there for those of us who have had to face something challenging, who have had suffering of our own that we've been called into. Just because we're not looking forward to it, it doesn't mean that we're lacking something. Jesus, who shows what it means to be fully human, fully God, Jesus himself is troubled within. Sometimes we have the picture that we need to face all of our trials bravely with smiles on our faces, that we are impervious, unaffected by change, and that's simply not the case here. Yet, in the midst of his soul being troubled, what anchors him is his Father's will. Beyond his feelings, he is to turn to the Father, giving him glory. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour, the hour of his glorification. Father, glorify your name. Jesus orients himself to the glory of the Father. In that line, uh, Father, glorify your name. Uh, Jesus, we have to understand the word name in its kind of cultural context. The, the name it describes the essence of someone, someone's very character. Jesus isn't just saying glorify this title that you have. He is saying through this, may it reveal something about who you are your very glory, may it be seen. To glorify a name is to glorify God the Father in his essence and in his character. So piecing this all together then, we have Jesus and his willingness to move to the cross as soul-troubling as it is, something that brings glory, the very glory that shows the character of who God is. 
I'll say that again a little bit differently here. Jesus is saying that the hour has come for his glory, and then he searches for the best image to describe what that moment of glory will look like. He's going to rephrase it. He's going to give almost a parable for what that looks like. And he ends up describing the death of a seed that bears much fruit. Now, I think it's helpful. I've heard other people comment on Jesus contemplating what it means to be one with the Father uh, so as to think about that throughout our passage here, that Jesus has contemplated what it means to be equal with God the Father in this passage. He is one with the one who has existed for all of eternity, for all of creation, and he's considering what this means, and he comes to this conclusion. To be equal with God means emptying yourself and giving your life away. And in a few days, Jesus will take this a step further. He won't just teach this, but he will show it. The one who is God himself is looking for the best way to show who God is, and it is not through a lecture, it is not through a teaching on himself, beyond words, beyond a picture, beyond a metaphor. Jesus lives it. As we prepare ourselves for the cross, we remember Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verse 19. I only do what I see my Father do. The one who only does what his Father does gives himself in self-giving love. The way to properly show glory to the Father is to take on the posture of a servant. Now, I've mentioned uh, in the past, especially in this series, an uh, old pastor and professor of mine, Daryl Johnson, and I want to turn to his words, kind of quote him a little bit longer here, because uh, he puts this perhaps most st- strongly. He says, in becoming a human being, Jesus, the eternal son, does not cease to be what he was. He does not renounce his divinity. He does not strip himself of divinity. Rather, he is expressing all that his divinity means. He does not consider equality with God something to be taking advantage of, but equality with God to be self-emptying servanthood. The Son of God who from all eternity possesses the form of God, who is equal with God the Father, he understands being God in terms of incarnation, servanthood, and crucifixion. He understands the best way to be God in terms of a cradle, a towel, and a cross. I think that's important for us to remember that in the incarnation, God doesn't cease to be who he was. Jesus walks on earth as fully God, fully human. His offering of himself isn't a moment of setting aside his godliness. It is the fullest expression of it. It is the hour, the moment of glorification. That's what it means to be God. That's what it means to rightly understand God in the world. Uh, To continue the quote, I've tried to put this in better words, but, or less complex words, but he says, the passion of Jesus is not a misfortune 
of a human devoid of power, it is the decisive manifestation of his divinity. He's saying that the passion of Jesus, this, this movement towards the cross, isn't, isn't because he is some sort of victim. It, it's not because he, he has no power. That's not what's going on there in the movement towards the cross. Instead, it is the way that Jesus is showing what it means for him to be one with God. What Jesus went through doesn't mean that he was without power. It is the peak of him showing and expressing what it means to be one with God. At one point here, the application of this passage, when we dwell with it, I think is to simply be in awe of who our God is, that this is something that ought to draw us towards his glory, towards his majesty. Our God manifests glory in giving himself so that we may have life. I almost want to finish there with an amen, uh, but I won't because that's, Jesus uh, keeps teaching. He keeps going from here. Notice the seamless transition here from what Jesus says about the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies to his expectation of his followers. He goes right towards anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The word anyone in there should stand out to you. This is this last teaching towards the public in chapter 12 of John. Anyone. This is an open invitation for all. Anyone, all of my followers, you can have eternal life. Just come and follow me. Now, Jesus' language around hating your life might sound a little extreme here. But, but one comfort is that in the Greek, there is more than one word for life. There's two different words being used for life here that we don't see because we only have the one word in English. In the first two occasions in this passage, he's referring to a specific type of life, the life of our internal world. It represents the parts of life that we can try and reach apart from God. It represents the things that we cling to for our identity, for our self-preservation. This type of life is about preserving your essence, your own way of life, your breath at the expense of others. We are to hate that. We are to have that set aside for this greater life that we are to cling to. Look inwardly and selfishly, and you will only find yourself growing more lonely, more closed off, these attempts towards loving actually point towards death, where if you let go and follow me, you'll be drawn to this different kind of life, the different word that's used for that eternal life, this life that's of a different quality that goes on forever. The way towards life means dying to the self. The closest equivalent that we have for this in the other Gospels is this 
line that Jesus says that to be followers, we must take up our cross and follow him. He is saying that you will not have, or you'll have to say no to that part of yourself that only wants gain in your own selfish interests. It means that you will have to offer yourself and sacrifice in ways that may actually trouble your soul. But it points towards the truest life. We can get stuck in this kind of unnatural clinging where we cling to our lives to protect ourselves. We insist that everything must go our way. And in the process, we actually might violate what we are called to be. We are people made most truly alive in dying. And to remind us, this is something that we're actually hardwired for. We're hardwired for self-giving. To give ourselves for others is an essential part of our humanity. We can think back to creation itself, where God creates not out of a need for something, but his own ever self-giving and ever-receiving love. When we give something out of an expression of love for another person, we are living into the world as it was meant to be. And so in the midst of sin and all that's wrong in the world, Jesus shows us what it means to be God and also shows us what it means to be human. He recovers the most natural thing and empowers us to do the same. Now, a few weeks back, uh, Pastor Ben had uh, something in his message that really stood out to me. He brought out this idea that we should be able to share a testimony of who God is, God's presence, God at work in our lives from something in the last 24 hours, that our, our gauge for God at work in the world shouldn't just be in these big and flashy and marketable things, but it should be seen and recognized in our daily lives. So trying to see this for myself, I can ask that question. Where have I seen opportunities for self-sacrifice. I think I have a pretty easy example because I have a two-year-old. Anybody that has parented a sick two-year-old might know a little bit of sacrifice. Sacrifice sometimes is as basic as not getting as much sleep as you'd like to. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to grow in self-sacrifice and, I have to say, didn't love it. Um, it's not that I was troubled down to the depths of my soul, it was simply that I was sleepy and I'd prefer to stay asleep rather than attend to a very cranky, tiny person. And it takes a stretch of the imagination, I think, sometimes, to think that when I am doing those sorts of things, I'm actually recovering something deeply natural to me. I might not be aware of it in the moment, but in those times, I have the opportunity in offering myself for the sake of another person. We come across these moments all the time in our lives. Sometimes there's these big moments of sacrifice where we're really conscious about it. But I think more often it is in these day-to-day -day things. For me, I am often left with this day-to-day -day way in which I am being called to untwist 
where, where I, I have my own selfish interests and desires, and I meant to open that up for the world. I find in these moments that I have to do this because the pressures of the world often have me pointing back towards myself. But acting differently reminds that I was made for self-giving love. When you are living in this way, you are living into the truest self. You can say simply that we are most fully human when we copy God, when we grow in imitation of God. And God says that when he is most fully himself is when he is living out self-emptying love. Now, we, we need to take care when we do these things because our hearts are masters at distorting these types of actions. We can take self-giving love and actually turn it into a transaction. I think this is easily done over time. We just kind of build these things that we do for others and kind of stack it up. I can turn an act of self-giving into something that's actually about me, kind of giving me an edge on another person. And that's not as likely to happen with a two-year-old, uh, but it is easy to give myself. Uh, these, these, these sorts of things uh, can be easier to do with friends or with a spouse. We can become scorekeepers of the tasks that we've done for the other person. And this calls us to set aside ourselves, set aside that self-interest that we might be tempted to go back towards. This untwisting inevitably also requires action. It involves actually doing something, actually practicing it. We can't just think about self-giving. We have to live into it and do it. As, as John points us towards, as Jesus' words direct us to, we are to follow him. It involves movement. So whether it's opportunities in your household or in your church or your neighborhood, in your family, there's no shortage of opportunities for self-giving love. Each opportunity is there to mold you, to shape you more and more into the pattern of Christ. So remember, remember what kind of God that we serve. That we serve a God whose character and essence is revealed on the cross. Not after the cross, but in being lifted up itself we catch a glimpse there of glory. This is the God who welcomes us to him. The God who gives that invitation, come and see. This is the God who invites us to follow him, to act in accordance, finding our lives as we give ourselves for others. Let's come before this God in prayer. Almighty Father, we see in the Gospel of John something hard for us to grasp, that you are a God who has it in your character to give yourself, that your love is deeper and stronger than we imagine. 
We thank you for Jesus' willing movement to the cross. And he showed us just how loving you are. May we deepen in our appreciation of the salvation that you offer before us. As we follow you, we pray your spirit's equipping. As we seek to give ourselves and rid ourselves of the things that we all too often cling to, may we be formed more and more into your likeness. In each act of self-giving love, give us the eyes to see the beauty of such actions. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.